a lot of monetarists describe the Fed as like Chuck Norris, that basically Chuck Norris doesn't have to actually kick your butt. He just has to come in and threaten to kick your butt. So once you know what Chuck Norris is going to do to you, you, you kind of just back off and say, okay, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to mess with Chuck Norris, but, and that's a lot of what the Fed does. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hi guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Cullen Roach, founder of the investment firm Discipline Funds, and also the analyst behind the popular financial blog, Pragmatic Capitalism. We wanted to have Cullen on to do a deep dive on the Federal Reserve, higher interest rates, higher inflation, the tools the Fed has at its disposal, and whether or not the Fed can pull off a soft landing, these are just a few of the things that we discuss. The Federal Reserve has had a major impact on the markets over the past decade, and Cullen helps us understand the Fed's job and how things may play out going forward with Fed policy. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Discipline Funds, Cullen Roach. Hey, Cullen, how are you? Hey, guys, how are you doing? Good, thanks for joining us. So I was on Twitter, um, and I saw you were posting uh, that you survived the few days with, without your wife. With the, you, you were solely <laughs> responsible for the kids. <laughs> I know. So, so she left me for seven days, um, thankfully not permanently. But um, although I'll tell you, after being alone with them for seven days, I was thinking about leaving her. So um, <laughs> no, it was, it's fine. I, um, although I have a whole new appreciation for, um, you know, single moms, single parents at all, or anyone who, you know, has to be, I only have two. So I don't know how, I don't know how anybody has more and I don't know how anybody does it alone. So God bless you. It's important to have a good good teammate working with you. So before we get into it, I wanted to uh, just highlight your, we were talking about this before, your um, YouTube channel, 3-Minute Money. And it looks like you're taking like what are economic concepts, things like money, interest rates, inflation, and you're really trying to like boil them down into basically three minutes or less, which I think is a really good idea because with people's attention spans, it's, it's like, you know, it's becoming less and less. So, so good job to you. And I, I definitely encourage people to go over there and, and check out yeah, it's been fun. You know, I do a lot of just educational material in general. So, you know, this one's nice because it's like I'm trying to do it in a really concise, you know, really just boiling the, these difficult concepts down into really simple sort of tangible points that, you know, aren't wasting people's time and rambling on about, um, you know, a lot of the rabbit holes that I oftentimes tend to kind of find myself in. So very educational. Um, and hopefully, you know, respectful of people's time, which I think is becoming more and more important these days. And you, you deserve an award for getting some of that down to three minutes. Like something like what is money? It's pretty hard to cover that in three minutes. Yeah. I mean, arguably impossible. So you know, I'm in some sense, maybe doing a disservice to some of these topics, but, um, you know, you'll, you'll find that like some of the videos are going to end up being like, you know, three minute money, part one, three minute money, part two, before you know it, I'm, I'm doing like 30 minute monies that are, you know, just disguised as three minute money. Well, people should definitely go over there and check it out. I think it's a good, it's a good channel. There's some good videos uh, to start. So today we, we wanted to have you on to talk about uh, the Federal Reserve sort of trying to do a deep dive on the Fed. Um, the Fed has obviously played an important role in controlling monetary policy for roughly 90 years. Um, and I think that just given what's happening in the markets today, I think, I mean, the Fed has gotten more involved over the last, let's say, 15 or 20 years, it seems like to me at least, and more of a, you know, in the headlines. But I think, you know, with inflation and interest rates, it seems like, you know, the Fed is maybe more front and center in, in, in investors' minds. So today we wanted to work through what the Fed's objectives are, the tools that it has at its, at its disposal, and sort of some of the past and potential future actions that the Fed may take. And so that's what we want to sort of work through with you today. To, to start, we thought it would be good maybe if we just talked about sort of at a high level what the major role of the Fed is and its 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 core objectives. Yeah. Yeah, so I, you know, I got really involved in studying all of this stuff, you know, not just in school when I was, you know, in undergrad and studying economics, but um, really because of the financial crisis. And I approach a lot of this from a very operational perspective. So I'm trying to ultimately 
Like I'm trying to help people make money from this. So I'm not really taking a political perspective or anything like that. I'm really trying to understand, you know, how does the vehicle work so that I can understand, you know, if you press a certain pedal, you know, what's going to be the result? How, what will the speed be? And, you know, how will it get from point A to B? And that's kind of how I approach a lot of what the Fed does. And so, you know, I started studying the history of the Fed in, in great, great detail. And the Fed is a particularly interesting central bank because it came into existence really due to a series of financial panics from the late 1800s, kind of the post-Civil War period, and the early 1900s. And so the biggie was the, the panic of 1907, which was essentially a, a big financial crisis that, you know, these financial panics that you had in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, they really, they put the, like, the 2008 panic to, you know, I mean, just... It's a shame to see like how catastrophic these things were compared to something like 2008 when we think of 2008 as being catastrophic. But in comparison, you know, these weren't even remotely the same types of things. These were such damaging events. And a big part of that was that the banking system was just very young, very fragile, uh, very fragmented. And that what became a huge problem for interbank payments. The country was becoming very sort of integrated economically and, you know, it was becoming a much, much smaller place in terms of, of how business and commerce worked. And there weren't really efficient ways to settle payments between banks back then. And so, and the big, big problem that would happen is that a lot of the times with private banks, private banks were running all of the private clearinghouses, meaning that when you had, you know, let's say that Jack banked at, you know, Bank of America and Justin banked at Citibank. Well, what would happen back then is these two bankers would all meet up at the end of the day and they'd settle their physical payments in physical notes. And But if you had a 2008 back then, Jack would walk in representing, let's say, Bank of America and he'd look across the table at the counterparty and he'd say, you know we've heard a rumor that you're not going to be able to make good on this payment. And so we're going to sit tight. We're not going to work on any of this now. Let's come back to this in like a week or two and see what happens. And, you know, that would, that basically caused, you know, these series of sort of slowdowns that would exacerbate everything. And you, you kind of got a whiff of this in 2008 where some of the banks and some of the, especially the investment banks, they weren't willing to settle payments with each other at the end of the day. And, what a, a central bank like the Fed does, and this is the thing that nobody really talks about, but the thing that they're really, really good at is they come in and they act as the independent intermediary where they're helping settle payments in the interbank market. And they're saying, they're coming in almost as like a, the, literally the regulator. And they're saying, you know what, Jack, you don't have to worry about Citibank because we've done the internal audit of Citibank. We're, we're looking at all of their financials right now we think they're good and we're going to we're willing to support them in helping you guys you know settle these payments and this is essentially what the fed did in 2008 and it worked seamlessly nobody talks about this but the fed came in and they basically they acted as that independent intermediary that helped to clear interbank payments and this helped avoid really this ca sort of cascading financial panicky event that really was the thing that made panics like the 1907 panic and the earlier ones in the 1800s so, so catastrophic. I mean, you had, you had real, real depressions every like 10 or 15 years in the 1800s and the early 1900s in large part because you'd have sort of garden variety recessions that would filter into the banking system where all of a sudden the banking system would exacerbate the real economic panic only because we didn't have interbank settlement. And so that's the main role of the central bank is they're settling interbank payments and they're doing this every day. Trillions and trillions of dollars of payments are settling every day. You know, right now, this instant, there's millions of transactions settling in the interbank payment system. And nobody thinks about this because the system just works really, really well. People only think about, you know, the types of events like 2008 when the system you know, kind of doesn't start to work so well. And it looks like the wheels are kind of falling off. And then the Fed comes in and gets very, very involved. And then they get a lot of media attention for whatever they're doing. But 
at a baseline level, interbank payment settlement is it is the core function of a good, well-operating central bank. And all the stuff they do on the side that gets a lot of media attention, changing interest rates, quantitative easing, um, you know, these repo facilities, things like this that are sort of like, you know, much more controversial, but get a lot of airtime. Those are frankly very, very secondary sorts of, of operations relative to their core operation as a payment settling entity. That is interesting because you hear about the Fed's mandate and they talk about, you know, full, full employment and, you know, whatever, maintaining or targeting inflation. And so that's sort of on the surface what you think is that's their only job. But to your point, it's this settlement thing is huge. And if that wasn't there, then, you know, yeah, the economy would probably look a lot different. Totally. I mean, it's like, um, you know, a good driver isn't doing a whole lot you know, for most of the drive. But if you almost get into an accident, it's, you know, the immediate impact there that everybody kind of pays attention to. But really, you know, a good driver is just doing sort of mundane things consistently really well. And that's a lot of what central banking is like. They're doing fairly mundane things very well consistently. And then, you know, when Citibank or Lehman Brothers makes a big mistake, they come in and they have to do something that's controversial. And that's what they get a lot of the attention for. What's your feeling on, there's this idea that if, uh, going back to the dual ma mandate, that if the Fed, you know, wants to stamp out inflation and raise rates, that is going to bring us into a recession and potentially sort of hurt employment. Where do you stand on that argument? Does one have to um, does one have to negatively always affect the other? Boy, I mean, this is a big academic debate. The relationship between inflation and unemployment. Um, you know, there's a lot of of academic work, like the Phillips curve, on this, arguing that there's a direct relationship. Um, it's really controversial. I don't. I, I tend to sort of fall into the camp where it it depends. It always kind of depends. There's no you know, you can't really, you guys know this from portfolio management, you can't just slap together one model and say, oh, this thing always works. Like, it depends. It depends on what's going on specifically in the economy. And so, you know, like right now is a sort of an interesting environment where the Fed has actually raised rates a lot relative to where they were. And we haven't really seen a direct relationship to the unemployment rate. You know, there's debates about whether there's some lagging effect and, you know, what the long-term effect will be. Um, I don't think anybody really knows, to be honest. There's, there's certainly a trade-off. The Fed is always involved in making trade-offs where, you know, the traditional sort of saying is their instruments are blunt. And that's true. You know, the Fed doesn't have, I mean, frankly, government policy, I think, is always pretty blunt. It's hard to be very, very precise, especially in an economy as big and diverse as the, as the U.S. economy. So when they come in, and they just raise interest rates, they raise the overnight rate, and that has this very sort of broad impact on all credit instruments. And so it's not a very fine tool in terms of the way they're implementing. They're implementing one interest rate, that interest rate impacts you know, most interest rates and most credit instruments across the whole economy. And so it is this very sort of blunt approach that you know, they, they just don't have better tools. They don't have something much more precise that they can implement because the central bank, you know, they're not like a local government or, a, or even a local central bank. They can't go in and just like, you know, kind of like focus on very microeconomic impacts. And so they're using these very broad tools that have a very broad impact. And I think that's where you tend to see the trade-off is that, when you, you know, when you smash something with a hammer, there's a, there's an obvious trade-off to that, that, yeah, you know, the Fed is really trying to slow down aggregate demand, but one of the, the knock-on effects of slowing down aggregate demand is that there's a, a pretty high likelihood that once you slow aggregate demand, you slow aggregate spending in the economy, and that means that firms are probably going to start to lay off some people. And so, you know, in a, in a very general sense, I think there is an obvious trade-off. I, you know, there isn't like some sort of like, you know, clear, clear model though that shows like a, a consistent trade-off in all environments. And it very much depends. This is a, 
you know, the current environment's just super, super strange because of all the things with COVID and the war in the Ukraine and, you know, a lot of the craziness that's been going on all over the world. So this is an even more unique environment probably than most. And I don't, you know, frankly, I don't think the Fed, I don't think the Fed really knows, you know, what to expect. And I think that's part of what's made Fed policy in the last, you know, 18 months really controversial is that they've, this environment's been so hard to predict that they're not really sure how their tools are going to work. Um, so my answer is I don't really know. To your point, it's, it's always different. There's always something going on. You know, when I think back to the early 2000s, then 2008, then the COVID, I mean, all these recessions, you know, there was something, there was a different, there was something different central to them. Um, and the Fed kind of reacted differently. And then, so, and, you know, so you just, yeah, it's like every, every environment is, has its unique, I guess, characteristics. I want to um, just ask you, how does the Fed measure inflation and full employment? What, what, what are their main tools and metrics that they look at? I mean, they're looking at the aggregate economy, but in a sort of simplistic sense, I mean, they prefer to look at the personal consumption expenditures, um, inflation rate. So the CPI is the one that gets all the, the airtime, but the Fed is really looking at the PCE rate of inflation. And that's, it tends to be, so uh, there's a lot of differences in how this is measured, but the basic difference is that the PCE is a broader measure um, versus the CPI, which is really just a household survey. They're getting mostly just household feedback. Whereas the PCE goes not only from household data, but also getting, they're also getting business data. So they're getting a broader data set and it, it's much more, because it's broader and the, you know, the data inputs are, are broader, they're getting a, a much smoother, typically, um, understanding of what inflation looks like. So PCE inflation tends to be the, the data point that they're looking at. And then in terms of, of understanding what's going on in the labor market, they're looking at the things that, you know, the unemployment rate and the, you know, the household surveys from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the, the non-farm payrolls, you know, this is part of what makes the Fed's job very, very unenviable is that all of this data is rear view mirror looking. So the Fed's trying to sort of predict the future to some degree, but they're very data dependent and they're beholden to Congress. So they can't just kind of come out and be like, you know, hey, we think this may happen. And, um, you know, so this is what we're going to do. They have to, they have to look at data and they have to say, this is what's going on with the data. And this is why we think the current rate of interest rates is appropriate based on the data that we see. But that data is all, you know, 12 months lagging or, um, or based on year over year estimates, or in the case of like the, you know, the non-farm payrolls, you know, this stuff comes in on a monthly basis and then it gets revised for like, you know, quarters going forward. So like you could have a, you know, a really, really robust labor market reading this month that in six months gets revised negative, you know, so they have a crappy job is basically what I'm saying because the data, they're data dependent, they're beholden to Congress and they're trying to predict a future that especially in an environment like right now is virtually impossible to predict. When you look at the, the Fed's dual mandate of maximum employment and price stability, one of the things I noticed that's not mentioned in there is economic growth. How much does the Fed care? And you know, I bring this up because this is sort of in, and I don't want to get in this debate because we could cover the rest of the podcast with it, but with the two negative quarters of GDP growth that came out recently, there's been this whole debate about, about whether we're in a recession or not. Like, How much does the Fed care about what's going on with GDP? I think they care. I think that the you know, in a broader sense, the, you know, their mandate isn't to optimize growth. Their mandate is to make sure that inflation isn't raging out of control and to make sure that people have, have jobs, basically. Um, you know, I think that in terms of, of letting, you know, or, or, or trying to maintain economic growth, I think the Fed sort of says, you know, hey, that's the, that's the role of businesses and households to, to grow the economy. We're just here trying to control, you know, what we hopefully can control, which is, you know, the, the, 
this is sort of the where a lot of this can get very controversial and theoretical is how much control does the Fed actually have over inflation and the unemployment rate in the first place? Um, I personally would argue that the Fed is, you know, not that they're not a very, very powerful entity, but that they're not nearly as powerful as sort of traditional economic theory uh, assumes. And so I tend to think that, for instance, I I think fiscal policy or what the government does on the spending side of things is far, far more impactful to all of this stuff than I think the the traditional economic model that focuses very much on the Fed. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of this comes out of sort of a, a 1970s framework and very sort of monetarist sort of approaches to economics where we assume that the Fed can be this sort of independent entity you can keep the government out of all of this stuff to some degree, and the Fed can just kind of come in and use their tools to control things in a more precise manner, being you know somewhat independent. And like I was saying before, their tools are just very blunt, and I tend to think not quite as powerful as a lot of people tend to think, especially compared to you know the amount of airtime that they get in the mainstream media. And to your point on fiscal policy, I mean, we might be seeing a really good example of that right now. Um, you know, in terms of fiscal policy is probably largely responsible for the inflation we're seeing. And, you know, that now the Fed is trying, you know, without the tool of fiscal policy to deal with it. Well, I think that's one of the big lessons coming out of the, the financial crisis versus today is that, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat well known for being sort of a disinflationist or not, not quite a deflationist coming out of the financial crisis. But like, you know, I studied quantitative easing in such detail during the financial crisis period that, I sort of realized that, okay, the way this policy works, it doesn't do what a lot of people think it does. It's not literal money printing in the sense that a lot of people were claiming that it is. And that was in large part because you didn't have the, the government spending that allowed the sort of monetization of debt that could have been inflationary in the way that a lot of people assumed. And so, you know, working from this very sort of traditional monetarist perspective, you might have said, well, when the government or the Fed comes in and converts government bonds to money, well, that creates more money technically in the economy. And that's going to, you know, flare up inflation and cause, you know, potentially, you know, a 1970s or a hyperinflationary environment. And what we, what we end up finding out is that, well, the lesson from 2008 and the post-financial crisis period there is that when you swap a treasury bond for a bank deposit, well, you know, that's a lot like swapping a checking account and a savings account. And, you know, what's the real difference there? And economically, you know, my point was always that this asset swap isn't a really big, meaningful difference. The difference is, and this is the lesson I think from 2020 and 2021 is, when the government comes in and issues a whole bunch of new savings accounts, literally expanding balance sheets through government spending and government deficits, and then the central bank comes in and starts swapping these savings accounts and checking accounts, well, you know, it looks like the Fed is the one causing the inflation there, but really the one causing the inflation there was the initial balance sheet expansion, the initial government deficit. And I think that that, that's the big difference between 2020 versus 2008 is that you had this huge, huge, you had a, you had a fairly big government response, treasury response, government fiscal spending from 2008, but it was nothing compared to 2020. I mean, you had seven, eight trillion dollars of government deficits over the last couple of years versus, you know, the, the rescue package in 2008 was 800 billion dollars. It just these things weren't even remotely similar, whereas you had almost the exact same sort of central bank balance sheet response and interest rate response, but you didn't get inflation like we did in 2020. And I think that the, you know, the, the evidence really strongly supports the idea that it's fiscal policy that is the very, very big bazooka in all of this. And that the central bank, while powerful, you know, maybe all the stuff they're doing isn't quite as powerful as a lot of people seem to think compared to, you know, at least fiscal policy. You actually got into where I want to go next because I want to talk about sort of the three main tools the Fed has. And, and like you mentioned, one of the things I learned from you is this whole idea that everybody was talking about quantitative easing being inflationary. 
wasn't really accurate. And so I guess my, and you've sort of described what it is already, but I guess my first question would be if quantitative easing and tightening doesn't really, it doesn't seem like it does much in terms of the Fed's dual mandate, you know, what is the goal the Fed has in doing that? So one of the problems with the Fed's unenviable job is that when they find themselves in a position like 2008, where they, so kind of backing up just a little bit, I think interest rates can be a very powerful tool um, depending on the environment. So for instance, I think that raising interest rates tends to be a very powerful tool because they can, they can have this very big asymmetric effect across the whole economy. And we've seen this in the last sort of 12 months where you see how much mortgage rates have changed. Mortgage rates have basically doubled in the last 12 months in large part because of what the Fed's done. That's a very, very powerful effect. Whereas the the impact is not quite the same when they cut rates so much. So I, I tend to find that when the, you know, depending on the environment, when the Fed cuts rates, for instance, from six to 3%, well, you know, that makes rates or that makes mortgages, you know, more affordable. But when the Fed, when, the, when you're coming off of this very low baseline and all of a sudden you have a 100% increase in interest rates, I think that's such a jarring type of event that the, the, dif the difference in the asymmetric outcome for the economy is a bit different. So I tend to think that raising interest rates is much more powerful than cutting interest rates. And when the Fed finds themselves in an environment like a 2008 where they cut rates from, say, 3% to 0%, well, they've kind of run out of tools to some degree. And so what quantitative easing was designed to do was basically come in and try to supplement the rate cuts. And so I talk about this in some of my recent three minute money videos where in theory, the Fed could come in and they have absolute control over the overnight rate. So they're the, they're the monopolist of the reserve system, basically. So they can come in, they set the interest rate on excess reserves, and they have absolute control over that rate. The, the banks can't force them to do anything that they don't want to do. You know, they can influence it in certain ways, or the market could influence it in certain ways. But really, if the Fed doesn't want to change rates from zero, there's nothing the market can really do to alter that. And so... What quantitative easing allows them to do to some degree is go into the longer end of the market and start messing around with like the supply of treasury bonds and other long-term instruments that has, you know, an impact on the, the interest rate on a longer duration, you know, longer maturity basis. And that's a lot of what quantitative easing is targeted at is they're buying, you know, 10-year treasury bonds and things like that, where they're trying to basically reduce the the, the public's supply of treasury bonds and hopefully bring down long-term interest rates in a way that can kind of supplement the way that they're trying to control or they have absolute control over the short-term rate. Does it work? Um, I don't really know. I don't think there's a ton of controversy over how impactful the, you know, the, even the academic work finds that, you know, maybe the the, the change in interest rates is like 25, 50 basis points. So, you know, a quarter percent, half a percent. Um, I basically, my view is basically that the Fed, what they do is they allow the long-term rates to float too much. So if the Fed came out and, you know, they're, they're, they're really, they're, they're setting policy through quantitative easing based on quantity, not price. So at the overnight level, what they're doing is they're setting a price. They're saying the, the overnight interest rate is 3% or something like that. They're establishing a price. And so the market comes to them, any counterparty comes to them and says, okay, well, we're not going to lend it less than 3% because we know that the biggest, most important counterparty in the world has already disclosed their overnight price to us. Whereas if the Fed went into the 10-year treasury bond market and they said, okay, we're going to set the 10-year treasury bond at 0%. Where would the price of the 10-year treasury go? It would go to 0%. And that's the big difference with what they're doing in quantitative easing versus how they set interest rates is they're letting quantity, um, they're letting the price float and they're setting the quantity. They're, they're telling the market, we're going we're gonna to buy this many bonds and you know, whatever the price is ends up you know, being a function of kind of the, what the market says. Whereas if they were setting the price, 
they could definitively control the price of the 10-year treasury bond and they could they could drive that rate right down to zero if they wanted to they could take all the treasury bonds out of the market if they wanted to because the fed has an endless you know a bottomless pit of money at their disposal that they can go out and they could buy anything with yeah, you had a really, a really good example in one of your three-minute money videos of this. You had the idea of a dog on a leash. And sort of at the short end, the, the Fed has complete control because the leash is right next to them. And as, as you kind of move out, they, they may have a little bit less control than, than they do on the short end. Yeah, they let the dog wander a lot with, with longer rates. And so, you know, if they really wanted to, they could take that leash and they could, they could roll it right in and they could grab the dog by the neck and the, they could take the 10-year or 30-year treasury bond and they could say you're not going anywhere anymore. You're, this is where you are and this is where you're going to stay. And that's how powerful the Fed could theoretically be with some of these policies. But they, they let the dog wander. They let the dog float because they're basically just saying, you know, here's a range in which we're going to allow you to go. Um, but, you know, we're not going to be, we're not going to be too firm with you in, a, in the way that we are really firm with the handle of the leash and the overnight rate. In terms of how this all affects the economy, would this be what people refer to as the income effect? So if the Fed is raising rates, effectively they're reducing income and that's reducing demand. Is that sort of the way they're trying to impact the economy? I think that the bigger impact is through credit markets. They're really trying to control the amount of lending that's going to be done through the, the banking system, essentially. Everything the Fed does essentially works through the banking system. So they're, you know, this is part of why I, I tend to think that the Fed isn't quite as powerful as a lot of people tend to think because there's, there's a second order effect where they're not just impacting everything directly. Like they're not, they're not able to just send checks to people like the US government can. Um, they have to basically set an interest rate, for instance, and then they have to kind of hope that the banks just don't, you know, go out and make a bunch of reckless loans or something like that. Um, and so, you know, in the last sort of 12 months, you're seeing this impact where credit markets are suddenly starting to look a little bit more fragile. And, you know, the housing market certainly is starting to look a lot more fragile. And that's because a lot of what the Fed does is just this filtering effect through, in large part, the housing market. A lot of people don't realize that the U.S. economy is to a large degree, just a big housing economy. When the housing market is good, things tend to be generally good. When the housing market goes to hell in a handbasket, that's a big, big problem because housing is just such a big, big component of the broader economy. It impacts, you know, so many things. It impacts, you know, how much furniture is purchased and, you know, how much new clothing a lot of people buy and things like that. So it has these weird sort of tangential knock-on effects that, you know, a big multiplier effect. But that's the Fed's, I think, primary conduit through which they're trying to work is mainly the credit markets and primarily the housing market. And I think that right now what they're really trying to do is they're trying to put the brakes on, on the housing uh, market to a large degree, hoping that this will slow down the economy to a point where it'll slow demand, hopefully not cause a recession, but bring inflation in a way that you know they feel more comfortable about where they... They can be, I think, more certain that we're not sort of spiraling into this sort of 1970s environment that they're very worried about. Two more quick ones on quantitative easing before we move to the Fed's third tool. Um, you know, since you were the person that taught me that quantitative easing did not cause inflation, I want, I want to invert the question on you. You know, you did say earlier that higher rates probably have a more, imp raising rates has a bigger impact than lowering rates. I mean, do you think quantitative tightening does anything to slow down inflation? There's... So there's a, there's a lot of different transmission mechanisms through which monetary policy works. So it's not, you know, because it's this blunt sort of instrument, um, it does have these tangential effects. So for instance, like the one that a lot of people talk about is the portfolio rebalancing effect. Um, this is another controversial one that a lot of people argue that, okay, so when the Fed, you know, takes out that savings account and gives you a checking account now, well, now your income has gone down. So now you have a problem where now you're earning a lower interest rate. And, you know, if you look at the aggregate economy, the interest rate that everyone's earning has gone down basically because of this, you know, this portfolio change. And so what does that investor do now? Well, if they're going to try to replace that, maybe they go into the high yield bond market or something, or they go into something a little riskier. Maybe they go into the stock market. And so um, how much does that impact? Again, the academic work on this is is super controversial. There's nothing clean. You know, this has been done in 
lot of different parts of the world where, you know, like Europe didn't have a huge bull market, even though there the ECB was expanding their balance sheet in exactly the same way the Fed was. Japan went through, you know, fits of quantitative easing for 20 years. Their, their stock market, you know, kind of boomed and busts and went sideways for, you know, a long, long time, despite a lot of the, the policy that they were implementing. So it's not very clear. I think a lot of people overlay, you know, lazy charts like the Fed's balance sheet with the stock market. And they say, look, you know, they both went the same direction. It's like, well, it's more complex than that, right? I mean, it, I mean, Greece, for instance, you know, Greece has been exposed to quantitative easing. Go look at a long-term chart of their stock market. It's friggin' mess. So despite the fact that the ECB's balance sheet has gone straight up. So I don't know. There's a lot of out of sample work on this that discredits the idea that the stock market is directly correlated to what the Fed does. But there are there are definitely there's definitely some impact. I mean, it's you know, common sense would tell you that when that person gets that that checking account in their bank account, well, you know, if their income goes down, it, it makes logical sense that they might take a little more risk and that. Honestly, that's to some degree what the Fed is hoping for. They're hoping that people will go out and, you know, not just invest in the sense that a lot of people think. They, they want people to really go out and spend for future production, which is what real economic investment is. They want businesses to go out and spend more because they're earning a lower rate of return on their cash. They don't want, they don't want businesses earning such a high level of, of interest on their checking accounts that they end up you know, not needing to go out and take any risk. Do you think there's any anything to this idea of the wealth effect? So some people argue that if quantitative tightening, and you, you know, it may not even do that, but if quantitative tightening does bring down asset prices, people will have less wealth and therefore they'll spend less money. Do you think there's anything to that? Yeah, I, mean, I think people get, people are so emotional. I think that when people see their, their balance sheets contract, um, I think that's one of the one of the risks that can lead to things like financial panics is that when people see, you know, this sort of, you know, there's kind of the, the FOMO effect or, um, you know, the panicky selling effect where people in both directions tend to kind of overreact to some degree where they see, you know, on the on the upside, maybe they see other people's balance sheets expanding more than theirs. And that, in, you know, that creates this sort of FOMO effect where they feel like they need to go out and take more risk or do something that, you know, go into the crypto market or do something with, you know, junk bonds that they wouldn't normally do. And so I think there is, you know, sort of a wealth effect that is based on this sort of irrational exuberance or irrational fear effect. Um, but I, I don't know, I'm not such a, I'm a behavioralist in the sort of economic sense that I, I definitely think there is a, a lot of emotion that drives a lot of this. Um, I tend to think it's more fringy. Um, so if you kind of, I guess, pegged me as whether I'm like an efficient market theorist versus a behavioralist, I'm probably like, probably like 70% efficient market believer and then on the fringes, you've got like the sort of tail effects of 15% and 15% where I'm, I believe behavior makes a big, big sort of out, you know, outsized difference, especially in certain environments where, you know, when you get things like panicky selling like 2008, you know, that obviously has a big, big asymmetric economic impact. The third tool I want to ask you about is the one Ben Hunt refers to as the Fed's words, but is more commonly referred to as forward guidance. Um, how does the Fed use that tool and what are they trying to accomplish with it? Well, so this is like um, a lot of monetarists describe the Fed as like Chuck Norris, that basically Chuck Norris doesn't have to actually kick your butt. He just has to come in and threaten to kick your butt. So once you know what Chuck Norris is going to do to you, you, you kind of just back off and you say, okay, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to mess with Chuck Norris. But, and that's a lot of what the Fed does is the Fed comes in and they say, okay, we're going to set interest rates at you know, 4% by the end of 2023. That's our goal. And you see this in things like the, the two-year treasury bill, for instance. The two-year treasury bill will front run what the Fed is essentially trying to do. So, you know, for the last year or so, the two-year treasury bill has been a much higher interest rate than the overnight rate. And that's because the market is getting this you know, verbal communication from the Fed about where they're going to go. And the market is then front running them. So it's kind of like, you know, going back to the, the dog walking analogy, 
the Fed is telling the dog, you know, hey, this is where we're going and we're going to let you kind of wander out there a little bit. And that's the market, you know, front running them and basically setting prices. And so, you know, the Fed doesn't have to come out and say, the, the Fed doesn't have to come out and actually set interest rates at 3% for the market to actually price in an expected 3% interest rate. So a lot of this is a, is a threat almost. It's this, you know, Chuck Norris effect. Yes, yeah, so picking up on the Chuck Norris example, Chuck Norris probably doesn't get any too many fights these days because of this. But is the same true with the Fed? I mean, does the Fed a lot of the times not have to actually do what they're saying they're going to do? I mean, I, I remember when they, I think it was in 2020 where they talked about they were going to buy like high yield bond ETFs or something. And the impact of them actually doing it basically just happened. Like, does sometimes the Fed not have to actually follow through with that stuff? Yeah, a lot. Well, this is the screwy thing with Fed policy is that the market sometimes will start to price in something that the Fed doesn't really necessarily want. So like right now, the the market has started Fed funds futures curves have started to price in rate cuts um, in 2023, potentially 2024. Um, you know, the Fed certainly hasn't said anything like that, but the market is basically listening to the Fed and then saying, okay, well, you're raising rates so fast that now we think there's a risk of a policy mistake here, potentially, where we could get into 2023, 2024, we could find ourselves in an interest rate environment that is actually creating you know, more unemployment than we expected, slower growth than expected, potentially a recession, and that's going to actually force you to walk it back a little bit. And so, yeah, it's the screwy thing where sometimes the Fed you know, is not just communicating to the market a more aggressive stance, but actually then following through in a way that, you know, is based on all this sort of rear view mirror data that results in them having to, um, to walk it back and, you know, then, you know, dampen expectations going forward. It's interesting because this seems like sort of an example where forward guidance may not be working the way they want it to because, you know, the market sort of got one message and then they seem to be parading every Fed governor out they possibly can to say, you know, we're not done raising interest rates. Inflation is going to be with us for a while. So they, they seem to be counteracting the way people are taking their forward guidance. Yeah, I, you know, I've kind of been talking about this a lot lately where I think that there's, there's a risk that the Fed is going to get it wrong on both the entry and the exit here where, you know, they, they didn't think that inflation – was gonna be high. They expected it to be transitory for basically all of 2020 and 2021. And then, you know, then the inflation really started to flare up and then they got really scared. And now I tend to think that the, you know, I think Powell thinks that he has to be Paul Volcker here, that he has to like really make sure that the inflation isn't entrenched in long-term and gonna stick around for like 10 years. And I think that the, the much higher probability is that inflation, it's not going to happen fast, but the much higher probability is that over the course of the next two years, inflation is going to normalize. It's going to look pretty benign in probably 2024. And, but the Fed isn't, the, the Fed isn't thinking like that. The Fed is much more worried about inflation being seven, eight, nine percent in 2024. And they want to make sure that absolutely doesn't happen, which frankly is an understandable sort of like, you know, risk management perspective, I guess. Um, but the risk to that perspective is that they're going to find themselves in late 2023 in a position where, you know, we're still having this recession debate and we're going to be, you know, four or five quarters into like negative or flat growth. And the Fed's going to be sitting around saying, you know, well, holy crap, you know, the economy really stinks here. The unemployment rate's starting to tick up. Inflation is definitely coming down. And does that mean we need to walk this back? Do we need to, to walk the, especially the mortgage market back to a point where we create enough demand where people can then afford to buy homes again, in, in essence? You touched on something I wanted to ask you about because it, it seems like this always happens with the tightening cycles. It seems like the tightening cycles, always they always tend to overshoot it always tends to cause a, re a recession. And, you know, we seem to have some of the smartest, I mean, I guess you could debate this, but we seem to have some of the smartest economists out there working at the Fed. I mean, why do they continue to make the same mistake? Is it because they're using backward-looking data or what is it that makes them do this every single time? Yeah, they're using backwards-looking data. And, I mean, 
it's really it's really easy to beat up on the Fed and and anyone in the government, you know, because we all get to we all get to sort of you know wait until we see the results of what they've done, and then we can kind of come in after the fact and say, "Aha, you stink at your job," you know. So I, they, none of them have enviable jobs. I don't know why anyone would want to work at the Fed. To be honest, it seems like just an impossible gig, especially given the amount of discretion involved in it. Um, but I think in in general, they they just they don't have very surgical tools. So they come in and they, you know, they see a patient that you know has a a broken femur, and they come in with a hammer and they say, well, you know what, you know, we don't really have the right tool to make the femur better. So let's just whack the femur until you know it's just not there anymore, and then you know we'll we'll tape it up, and you know you can grab some crutches and or a wheelchair, and you know you'll be able to go on about your day. You know, that's kind of how Fed policy works to a large degree. And so they're coming in with these very, very blunt instruments that work in such a big, broad macro sense that, you know, they they sometimes cause more long-term harm than the Fed intends. And so, you know, I, personally, I think this is a, a great example of what's going on right now where the Fed is coming in and they're basically saying, look, we're going to put the brakes on the housing market. We're going to do this by raising rates really quickly. And I don't think they really realize what the potential downside to housing prices actually is. And if it ends up being a lot worse than they actually think, then they're going to find themselves in a situation that they end up having to walk it back in large part because they just don't, they don't have precise tools to manage the things that we're asking them to manage. I have just a couple more before I hand it back to Justin. Um, one of the things I want to ask you is around this idea of the Fed's dual mandate. And people have argued that sort of there's this indirect third mandate the Fed has as well, which is, you know, when the stock market gets down enough, they don't want to see it going down. They want to stop that. So how much do you think the Federal Reserve actually cares about what the stock market is doing? They definitely care about the this wealth effect, but they don't and they definitely they they care a lot about financial conditions and so a lot of this is correlated i mean if the if the banking system is unhealthy or the credit markets are unhealthy then the fed could get involved in a way that bolsters that and tries to shore up the banking system or the credit markets and so and all that stuff is good for the stock market in a sort of tangential way so yeah, I mean, I, I think in general, I mean, the stock market isn't a, a perfect reflection of what's going on in the broader economy, but the stock market is to some degree a, a pretty, you know, it has a, a pretty high correlation with the general well-being of the economy. The stock market doesn't go up, you know, when the economy is awful in general. So um, I think the Fed, the Fed's not directly targeting stock prices but they are very indirectly impacting them because, I mean, for instance, changing changing interest rates changes the discount rate across the stock market. So that has a very sort of direct impact on the stock market. Um, and they've been pretty clear about that in the last like six months where, you know, a bunch of Fed officials have come out and said, hey, we think stock prices are basically too high. We think there's too much money floating around. There's too much wealth, too much speculation. And part of what they're doing with raising interest rates is they're trying to you know, raise the discount rate where they're trying to make, you know, riskier assets less attractive. And so um, I don't generally think it's a, it's something that they're very, you know, they're not trying to like set the, the price of the stock market. They're trying to really indirectly impact things that will ultimately benefit or hurt the stock market in a way that is sort of you know, tangential to what their primary goals are. You mentioned Paul Volcker uh, earlier, and one of the things I've been trying to do is study this period of the 70s and 80s and see what we can learn from it. And there was an interesting debate going on on Twitter recently about this. And, you know, the, the common narrative is basically Vol Volcker was the hero. He raised rates. He broke the back of inflation. And it was Jem Kersan, I think, who was kind of arguing that, you know, Arthur Burns had actually raised rates a lot as well. And, you know, Jem Kersan was kind of arguing that when it got to the point that Volcker was doing it, sort of the fundamental drivers of inflation were at the point where they were ready to abate. And maybe Volcker was not the hero he thought. And it, since it has a lot of impact on sort of where we're going through right now, I'm wondering if you could just talk about that period a little bit and maybe how much what Volcker did had an impact on breaking the back of inflation. Yeah, the 70s are really, they're such a unique period. So there, there were a lot of weird things going on in the 70s. You had... You know, the, the the oil supply shock was a huge problem. You had the baby boom, 
was creating all this excess demand, all this new demand for things that the U.S. economy just hadn't really experienced in a long time. You had booming credit markets, um, and you had totally different dynamics in the labor market. Unions were really powerful. Workers had a lot of negotiating power. Um, a lot of that stuff has been totally flipped upside down. The oil story is kind of the same, although I would argue that you know back in the 70s, the U.S. economy was was really an oil-based economy. You didn't have, you didn't even have things like really a big natural gas market or, um, or alternatives. You didn't have, you know, solar power wasn't even a thing. So you didn't, it was a much more petroleum-based, much more oil-based economy back then than it is today. So the, the stuff going on in Europe and the Ukraine is going to have a big, big impact on inflation. And especially if, you know, if it continues to happen, it'll cause a big problem for inflation going forward. But um, in general, the economy is a lot, lot more diverse than it was back then. It's also very politically different. The, the unionization story is completely different, has been almost arguably flipped upside down, where you can make an argument that um, corporations now have you know, arguably too much uh, negotiating power when it comes to wages. That's kind of maybe starting to change in the last year or two, but not a lot. Um, and then the demographic story is obviously like completely different where the, the demographics have really been flipped upside down where now everyone's worried about economic growth being slow in large part because the demographics are so bad. So I, I think a lot of what was going on in the 70s were things that were, were really well out of the control of the Fed. And I do tend to agree with that view that Raising interest rates definitely had a definitely had a big impact on things like credit markets and demand. Um, but I do think there were more, much more structural issues going on in the '70s that created or contributed to the, you know, a ten-year period of inflation. That, yeah, the Fed policy had an impact certainly. But I, you know, I, like today's probably a, actually a pretty good, you know. I think corollary to what's going on. I think people, I think in three or four years, inflation will have come back down to like, let's say two and a half, three percent, something like that. It will have normalized to a level that people are pretty used to. And I think a lot of people will look back and say, well, that was all Jerome Powell. You know, Jerome Powell raised interest rates, was very aggressive. They came out with all this, you know, really, you know, very combative sort of narrative and they were the, you know, the fed officials were out every day talking about higher interest rates and how we need lower inflation and i think a lot of people will say oh well you know the powell fed took care of inflation whereas yeah it, it's certainly having an impact um but is the bigger impact things like what's going on in the commodity markets and supply chains and some of these other you know more you know I think broad macro effects that are really, these are things that the government just can't control that are, you know, going to normalize over time because, you know, like you've seen this in a lot of the data. I mean, we're finally seeing things like used car prices are actually starting to go down. I think used car prices are down 10%. Um, the cost of a shipping container from China is down like 50% from its peak. These prices are still way up on a year over year or multi-year basis, but a lot of this stuff is starting to normalize in a way that, you know, is the Fed directly causing all of that? Or is this stuff that's just sort of normalizing after a really, really strange, unusual period where, you know, COVID had this big, big outsized impact. And it's just, it's just taking a lot of time for a lot of this stuff to turn around a lot longer than people expected. You could argue this increases the risks and over-tightening here, though, because if Powell wants to be Volcker, if he wants to be the guy that broke the back of inflation, you know, maybe he is going to go a little bit too far here in order to try to be that. Totally. And I think that's the big, big risk here is that they're, you know, and to their, to their defense to some degree, I think that's something that they're aware of. They're willing to... They're willing to cause unemployment and potentially a recession to make sure that the 1970s aren't going to happen. Because, I mean, look at this, like, I've said that inflation, I think inflation peaked back in, like, January, February. If you look at, like, PCE data, like, I think it peaked. Um, and I think that, I think there's a, a pretty low probability that we won't look back in several years and say, oh, yeah, that was the, that was the peak, basically. But... What if I'm wrong? I mean, if I'm wrong and, you know, what if my understanding of inflation 
is is you know a misinterpretation or what if you know what if something unusual continues to happen in ukraine or in the oil market and you know you see this really sustained high commodity price boom um i mean in that sort of a scenario the fed will end up looking pretty smart i think the more probable outcome is the one that you just mentioned where these sort of bigger, broader macro effects are, are now bringing inflation down to a more sort of secular trend. And it may not happen fast, but if the Fed is much more aggressive than they need to be, in part because they're being impatient with a lot of these big secular trends, um, then they could cause a, a bigger impact on a lot of this stuff than they desire that will find us in a recession with a, a higher than expected unemployment rate in 18 or 24 months that, you know, people could look back and say, you know, well, yeah, the Fed brought down inflation, but did, did they do it by basically crushing the housing market and the economy in such a way that, you know, did it cause more harm than we needed to cause? I, I know the Fed makes decisions uh, based on the committee that votes, but it, it, and tell me if you agree with this, Colin, uh, Powell does seem to be like open-minded and flexible. That's my sense of him. My sense is that, you know, at least from his, his perspective is as the data comes in, you know, we're willing to uh, make adjustments. Do you, do you think that's sort of a correct assessment of sort of his leadership style? Oh yeah, I, Powell, I think Powell has been a very good, I mean, as far as this job goes, I mean, I, I made a joke late last year when the whole thing with the Ukraine started going going on, I was like, oh God, commodity markets are gonna be a disaster for 12 months. Like the Fed's now in a totally impossible position. And I was like, they should just raise rates to one or 2%. You know, this is back when rates were still 0%. So it seemed like a lot back then, but I said, oh, the Fed should just raise rates to like one or 2% and, you know, then automate Fed policy and, you know, Jerome Powell should fire himself and the rest of the board and just go, you know, take a vacation for the rest of their lives. Um, their job is impossible. And I think as far as Powell, you know, has confronted all this, he's been very practical. He's been at least, I think, I mean, God, imagine having Donald Trump in your ear all the time, like he had for years there when, you know, policy, you know, seemed, you know, like, you know, Trump wanted it a very specific way and Powell was trying to stay independent and he did a really good job of staying independent and trying to stay data dependent. Um, I just think it's a horrible job. I don't, again, I, I just, I think it's a, a horrible, impossible job. I don't think anyone can do it well. You know, even if, uh, even if these guys are the best doctors in the world, you know, they've been handed a bunch of mallets and told to go in and perform brain surgeries. And it's like, you know, I don't care how smart you are. Like you just, you don't have the right tools to do the things that we're asking you to do. I want to ask you about this idea that when the Fed raises rates, it obviously impacts interest rates, which therefore impacts the demand of things like housing and things like cars and just overall that sort of like spills you know, into the economy to you know, maybe slow the economy down um, and slow inflation down. But um, you know, we've seen just recently this, this Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. And this idea that, you know, we might be able to control inflation from things that the government maybe conduct, you know, policies sort of from the government. You know, what, what are, what's your general, like, feeling on that idea? Um, not great. <laughs> um, again, I, just, I don't think the government has the precise tools to, to bring down inflation, for instance, in the next, like, 12 or 24 months over the time frame that they really want. I think government policy is obviously important. And I think it's important to do things that, you know, create incentives that certainly, you know, help certain trends in the long term. Like I think the, the Fed and the government in general could do a lot of stuff that in the housing market would have a more beneficial effect on the long term supply of housing, for instance. Um, a lot of that would involve the government maybe not being so involved in a lot of ways, but they can send signals and implement policy that, you know, creates guardrails, but at least like incentivizes people in very specific ways that results in, in, in more positive outcomes um, than the, the market, just letting the market kind of run rampant. Um, 
you know, yesterday's announcement of the student loan stuff was a great example where it, this is the exact wrong type of incentive structure, in my opinion, where the, the problem with the, you know, the, the college market, basically, and in, in college education is that it's just really expensive. And the student debt issue exacerbates that to some degree, because the government basically is sitting there saying, look, we will provide endless amounts of funding for people to go to college and we're doing it in this sort of backdoor way where we're going to give out student loans and now we're saying not only are we going to give out student loans to people but we're going to give out student loans we're going to forgive them so what they've really done here with the student loan policy is they've created a, an incentive structure that in the long run probably has a negative impact on prices because now they've given colleges more pricing power because they've created basically a, a, a an excess demand for uh, student loans, which will filter through to prices. And so I don't, things like that really don't make a lot of sense to me. The, the student loan thing, you know, depending on you know, who you talk to, it's going to offset a lot of the, the inflation impact of the Inflation Reduction Act. So it's kind of this really, really strange idea. Um, but in general, my, my big broad view is that we shouldn't rely on the government to try to bring down inflation in a very acute sort of um, short time horizon, like a lot of people, especially politicians, want you to believe they can. But that the government, in a general sense, is there to provide us with, you know, regulations and things that can, you know, provide guardrails or at least, you know, some incentive structure to, to do things in the long run that can be beneficial. I didn't even think about that with the student loans. I mean, not only could you have more higher prices for education, you also have now the money that would be going to service that student loan debt. I mean, where is that going to end up? That's going to end up in, you know, going after goods and services. So it like, you're right. It like counteracts. Yeah, it totally. I, it really, it's a confusing one. I don't know. I don't know what they're going for there. They're going for the young voter or what, but um, it's a confusing one, especially in an environment where you have inflation like this, the the last thing that the government should be doing, the the fiscal side of things, is doing anything that is stimulating demand. Because you know, if again, if I'm wrong about inflation having peaked and coming down, um, you know, I if I were running the government, you know, even though I am of this view that inflation has probably peaked and will come down, I still, I absolutely would not be running big, big deficits now because I'm, as a risk manager, I'm cognizant of that potential that, okay, well, what if I am wrong? Well, then, you know, we certainly don't want to be stimulating demand in any way that might, you know, put, you know, more fuel on the fire here. So just in uh, terms of this last question, we wanted to ask you, um, if you were, in Jerome Powell's seat, which we know if you were, you, you, you'd hate your job. You'd probably be, <laughs> hopefully you'd be on a beach somewhere and have it, have the whole Fed policy automated. <laughs> Throw the chair out the window. But I mean, what, what, would you be doing anything differently here? Yeah, well, so the Fed has to do some things to some degree, like, you know, they're, so going back to the beginning of the conversation, like they're the central clearinghouse. And so part of that is, they have to set an interest rate in the interbank market. They just, they have to. Um, and the question is, is, you know, could they do something that was more automated or didn't involve quite so much discretion where, you know, they were having an impact in certain ways that are necessary, but not quite relying on, you know, kind of the man in the tower approach where it's like, you know, how do you, you know, how do you view the weather today? What direction is the wind blowing? And that seems to be a lot of what they're doing is they're sort of, you know, they're, they're going on this sort of rear view mirror data approach, and then they're making guesses about the future. And then they're saying, okay, this is what we think we should do. And personally, I think a lot of things, like I think interest rate policy could be automated to some degree. Um, you know, a lot of some theorists think that you should just set the overnight rate at zero percent and just leave it there and leave it there forever. Um, you know, I'm, I don't go that far, but I think that you could create something like a, you know, I've written in the past about a modified Taylor rule. Taylor rule is basically like an automated overnight rate that would sort of systematically change over time. 
And I think something like that is smart. I tend to defer towards, I'm not like a big anti-government guy, but I am, I tend to, I tend to approach the, the world of, of policy in a lot, you know, a similar way to the way I approach portfolio management, that I tend to view a lot of discretion as being bad. I think that the more systematic you can be, the more that you can create a system and a process that's automated to a large degree, the better the outcomes will be in general. And so um, if I were Jerome Powell, I, I would do, the, you know, I would do the joke that I said. I would, you know, I would set interest rates at, you know, whatever, tell people the overnight rates going to 3%. I'd implement a modified Taylor rule. I'd throw my chair out of the window and I'd go find another job that I actually like doing where people don't scream at me all day. We appreciate you coming on and, and sort of talking through all this stuff with us. Um, so thank you for your time. And thank you guys. I hope it added, you know, some perspective to a lot of the noise that's out there. Where can people go to learn more about you? Um, you have a very popular blog, you're on Twitter. So where can they go to find out more? Yeah. So people can find me. My blog is pragmatic capitalism and my firm is discipline funds. So we run, uh, systematic discipline-based investing strategies that are kind of similar to a lot of the behavioral stuff that I talked about today. Great, great. We'll put links to all those uh, in the show notes. Thank you so much, Colin. We appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, guys. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.